This is the War Room Roundtable podcast, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant businessmen and women on the planet, hear their stories, and get the most important business lessons they've learned on the road to success, and get exclusive advice on how to implement their successes into your life and business. The War Room Roundtable is brought to you by your hosts, Jason Miller, CEO of Strategic Advisor Board, and Philip Llanos, CEO of Own the Rhythm, and former podcast host for Entrepreneur and Inc. Magazine. Welcome to the War Room, Greg. Slavor, did I say that right? Oh, geez, there you go again. <laughs> oh, you have to run it. That, was, that worked. That worked. Lord, uh, first of all, you uh, you run Westwood International. You are the founder, and also Hope Makers Collective. So, mm-hmm. there's two things I want to get into. Number one is the fact that you are running a, a company, and then the other that you have a community that you're also running. And for me, those go hand in hand with what Strategic Advisor Board is all about. You know, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to be that kind of conversation, which is why I'm prefacing it now for anyone listening. Uh, but with that said, Jason and I are definitely excited to have you here. And we're going to start off the way we traditionally do with every conversation. And that is, do you, Greg, come from a family of entrepreneurs? I do. I do. Matter of fact, uh, it was interesting. My father, when we were young, we were quite poor. Matter of fact, I remember drinking powdered milk for most of my childhood. Uh, we couldn't even afford milk. Um, and he always just wanted to have his own business. So he started selling candles door to door when I was born and then worked uh, trucking. I think he was a trucking dispatcher at night. And then my mom worked two jobs as well. And so they would literally just hand off the kids and keep going almost 24 seven working. And as I, yeah, as I recall the story, there was a gentleman who had a brokerage firm actually was selling candy. A fancy name was confectionery broker. Asked my dad to join the company because, you know, he could, he was so impressed with my dad's persistence in sales. And so my dad joined the company and after about a month or two, he said to the guy, Hey, uh, when's my name going up on the wall? He's like, Oh, your, your name's not going on the wall. I mean, you're a partner here with me, but you're, it's just my name that's going to be up there. My dad said, thank you very much and walked out the door, left. And uh, during enough, a couple months later, the guy came back, said, okay, your name can be up there. And, you know, my dad did that, you know, for our whole life then, you know, he was a confectionery broker or, you know, the name goes a candy salesman, um, but ended up doing, you know, fairly well with it and put us through college and different things. And so, uh, yeah, so all entrepreneurs. Now, my brothers, I mean, I wouldn't say my brothers are entrepreneurs in the sense that they all have worked for companies, but they all went into sales. So my three younger brothers, I'm the oldest of four, they are all in sales, which, you know, is the number one skill that an entrepreneur needs. So in a sense, we all have the entrepreneurial spirit. Oh, Wow. First of all, I didn't know candy was such big business. Yeah, it, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> you know what though? It's one of those things that I find often. It's it's the businesses that you don't even think of that really are the ones that pull in really consistent revenue. And yeah. somehow it I it never ceases to surprise me. I don't know what I haven't learned yet. You know. <laughs> uh, but with that said, oh man, when you speak to sales, 
that is something that people have to get over. Like I, I speak this, you know, speaking to myself in terms of like, it's not about your personality and whether it fits in with it or not. It's whether you're going to accept the fact that you, you either are an entrepreneur or you're not. And sales has to be a big part of that is what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, for me, it's, it's like sales isn't, is it, to me, it's just a matter of caring about the other side. And that's as simple as that asking questions. I mean, people never argue with their own data. And so if someone wants to buy something or need something, and you have something that's good to offer, it makes sense. If they don't, if they don't want it or don't need it, or what you have isn't good, it doesn't make sense. To me, the formula is pretty simple. <laughs> and, and, and it's a lot about just being curious, asking questions and wanting to serve. I mean, in its simplest form. So to me, sales has never been that difficult or a science or all those other kinds of things. It's just been that simple formula. Now, is Westwood International your first company? It is. Wow. It is. Now, now, I had the company. I started the company. And I started working with different companies as kind of a sub. Because I was essentially doing teamwork, coaching, leadership programs, designing experiences. And when I was young and just starting out, several people took me under their wing to help me out. And what was ironic is three of those people ended up stealing from me in one way, shape, or form. One person said, look, want to help you. Um, so why don't you come and you can work with me and my corporate clients, and I'll take you on some you know, opportunities so you can see what's going on and be my assistant. I'm like, great. And our range was I was going to get a fee and get paid my expenses. So I paid the expenses on my pocket, went and did it. Person came back and said, uh, oh, and by the way, you know, the client's not going to pay, so I'm not going to be able to pay the fee I promised you. I thought, well, all right, well, what about my expenses? Well, sorry, we're not going to get those either. So as, a, as someone starting out, that was painful, right? That was painful. Mm -hmm. I had another person who said, look, I really like what you're designing and experiencing. You know, help me design these two weekend programs for, and at that point it was for young people and uh, people who were running these kind of young groups. And so I designed two, ran out, went, went out and ran both of them. They're like, wow, that's fantastic. Can't wait. We're going to set you up for a whole year schedule. I'm like, fantastic. Found out a month later, they'd hired someone else who was a third of my price never paid me for the design, went and did it, right? So the third time, I finally thought I was going to get smart. I said, look, I want to get paid, and I want a part of the action for what I'm designing. And the guy's like, fine, absolutely give you that. So I'm designing, I'm getting paid. At least this time, I'm getting paid. And after six months, I said, look, I've designed three programs for you. When am I going to be a part of the, you know, fabric here? And he's like, what do you mean, part of, you know, what do you mean? I said, well, you said you would give me some shares in the company if I built content and I sold it and was building your company and I've done that now. Here's the track record. Here's what it looks like. Here's your ROI. He's like, I never said that. I was like, oh, see you later. So I finally just went out of my own completely. And the irony is I just about lost everything in my first gig. So at the time, I was, I had, I've had some very fortunate breaks in my career. And one of them was meeting M. Scott Peck. And so back in the 80s and 90s, he wrote the book, The Road Less Traveled, which for years was on the bestseller list 
for years I mean, years was, I think the best-selling book only second to the Bible for year after year for like five or six or seven, it was a crazy amount of time. And I ended up becoming his youngest facilitator when I went through the training. And so I started doing workshops on my own and I wanted to work more with more organizations. I always loved facilitating and working with groups. And so I put together this conference called Community Building and Organizations Conference. So it was people who wanted to do community building, but in intact groups, which is a little different dynamic. So I spent all this money, got a hotel, put all the deposits down, pretty much spent everything in my account. And uh, my wife at the time was not too pleased that I was doing this. She didn't like the risk. And lo and behold, two weeks before the program, there's only six people signed up. And I had committed, like you're going to have these speakers, this, that, and the other thing all going on. I couldn't keep that promise. And so I was getting a lot of pressure to cancel the whole thing, lose the deposits. And I don't know what I would have done. And I said, no, I'm going to give this one more try. So I called everyone who had signed up and I said, look, I apologize. I promised you this for this amount. These people are not going to be able to make it. It's not going to be event but I will come and do a three-day experience for you, teach you what I'm learning from Dr. Peck and what I've done and go through it if you want to continue. And lo and behold, every single person said, you know, I appreciate you calling and yes, I'll do it. So I did that. And in the meantime, in the next two weeks, nine more people signed up. So then I ended up just about breaking even, ran that program, out of that program, got three new clients and it started building from there. And, uh, you know, if I had listened to everyone telling me to cancel it, I would probably still be broke. And, uh, but it was, that was the beginning. So, and it was tough because, right. I just come off of three times being stolen from now I go the first thing out the gate and that's not working either. And I realized, you know what, just be honest, see what happens. Did it worked out. And I've continued from there. Here's yeah. usually where I have questions, but I know Jason wants to come in on this. Jason, please <laughs> step in here. <laughs> I I think it's the entrepreneurial journey, right? right. I mean, I get I get uh, so I call them COVID coaches. That's what I call them, COVID mm-hmm. coaches and consultants, right? So the ones that popped up during COVID and and whatnot got fired from their job at McDonald's and decided to do something else, right? Mm-hmm. And it created a lot of chaos, mm-hmm. especially in the consulting world. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. it create chaos? Cause so many people got screwed over, mm-hmm. lied to screwed over. We're going to come do this amazing thing for you. And, mm-hmm. and then no amazing thing happens. Right. Right. <laughs> and God, it is just like the, the epitome of really the entrepreneurial and, and business owner struggle when you're starting, right? Because mm-hmm. there's always, see, people have this Hollywood idea mm-hmm. behind business and that it's just so glamorous and wonderful and all these things, right? But when we all started, we all took a bite out of some shit sandwich. <laughs> you just took three bites, four, almost yeah. four. Um, and, but 
but the beauty behind that is, is the adversity to continue. Mm-hmm. That's what separates an employee from a business owner is that right there. The, mm-hmm. the ability to get kicked on your ass four or five times and still get off, get up, dust off. And your wife goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and you're just like, you just got to trust the process, even though you don't know what it is yet, but, <laughs> but you're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I would say a good majority of people do figure it out right? because um, right. they have to, they have to. So. Exactly. And I mean, to continue that story. So then I started doing more and more workshops, did things on my own and was working at the university, got my master's at Boston College and was st- on staff there for several years. And then eventually someone learned that I, some people who ran this conference, I was interested in and attended for two or three years said, look, you know, Dr. Peck, we've been trying to get him to speak. He won't speak. He refuses our invitation. Will you reach out to him and see if he'll come? And I was like, all right, you know, I'll try. And at this point he was a friend. And so I reached out to him and I said, Scotty, you know, this is the conference I'm a part of. Would you come and keynote? And he's like, and my nickname was Z, just the letter Z. And he said, Z, I'll, uh, I'll do that for you. And I'm like, great. So they worked it out. They did the keynote. He went and did the keynote. Thousand people in the room. I'm sitting in back, just kind of excited that I know him and made this connection. Well, lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, and he was a reluctant Messiah. And I, and I say that like a lot of people read his book and said, wow, this gentleman has got to be so enlightened and so wise. And he really rebelled against all of that and really had no interest in that part. And he's written about that and talked about that as well. Well, unbeknownst to me, he stands up at the end of his talk and he says, look, a lot of you are going to want to come up and talk to me and come up to the stage and don't come up. I don't want to talk to you. But one of our best facilitators in the room right now, he's like, Z, where are you? And I'm like, oh, and I stood up and he's like, Z, wave. And I waved. He's like, go talk to Z. He's one of our best facilitators. He'll help you. And I was like, whoa. And I sat back down and I had three companies come up to me and ask to put me on retainer right away to help them with their group dynamics, their teamwork, et cetera. And at that point, I left the university and then went into it full time. And so it was kind of the break that I was looking for. Um, that I needed to kick off my company full-time. So that was it. And I haven't looked back since. Um, matter of fact, it was funny that Arthur Anderson, when it was still in business, was a client, the business consulting group. And they asked me to come in and help them design a national leadership kind of process and practice. And so I did that and it was going really well. And they kept pushing me to come in full-time. I was like, no, I, I like being a consultant. I don't want to be full-time. And they kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And so I finally said, all right, I'll meet with you. But in my head, I still didn't want it. And I thought, I'm just going to ask for everything, like just crazy stuff. And so I went into the interview and I said, okay, here's the budget I want. I want to build a team. Here's the amount of you know, vacation I want. Here's what, you know, da, 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 da. and I only want to report to the two of you. I'm not going to report to any other partners. And if the, and if the two of you ever leave, I'm leaving the company and all the clients I bring in, cause I had a lot of national clients at this point, 
all the clients I bring in, I get to take out with me. I mean, crazy stuff. And at the end of the interview, they said, okay, you're hired. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no, it's painful. And I looked at them and I said, give me a day about it. <laughs> and they just about punched me. They're like, what do you mean? We just gave you everything you asked for. I was like, I know, but I didn't expect you to. And so, <laughs> so, and so here's, here's the irony. So I went and I, and I took the job, you know, and uh, did it. And two and a half years later, that what we designed went so well, they were going to make it into a, they were going to put it into the different regions, which essentially means in, in the process, the way they did it is you built a national practice and it worked well. Then each region took it over and, you know, it was split up. Every region started to adopt it, which was the case, which was great because then what we designed and put together made a lot of sense, was getting a lot of return. And they came to me and they said, you're going to leave now? And I was like, I told you I would. I said, I'm, you know, I have to go to a regional partner. I don't want to do that. I certainly don't want to move. So yeah, I'm going to leave. And I had built up a team of people to run this practice. And when I was leaving, a lot of them said, God, we love working with you. We'd come with you, but you're so small. And Arthur Anderson is so big. We can't take that risk. And if I'd have been really smart, I would have said, you know what? In six months, I'm going to be making more money than Arthur Anderson. Because literally, it was two and a half months later that Enron happened. Mm. Which was super sad because it only was, as far as my understanding was, I don't know a lot of the details, but it was only about 17 people out of the 60,000 employees who were working at Enron. And the whole company went down due to the mistake of those 17. And like the partners who, who I really respected, who brought me in, who I worked with, they were great. I mean, they've been paying for years. They were making less money than I was because they were buying into being a partner. And now all of a sudden, now they spent all this money, they've given up all their salary, and now they're liable, right? Legally liable as a partner based on the mistakes of these 17. So I'm not the only one that's been, been stolen from. And it happens in all different kinds of shapes and forms. And I think the other thing that's probably been a great lesson for me is just to realize life isn't fair. It's never been fair. It never will be fair. And the sooner I just accept that, embrace it, and keep working, the better off I'll be. So there was, there was, uh, there, it's been quite a journey. Greg, there are so many qualities that you've exhibited and just being able to tell your story alone that I feel would be incredibly valuable to the audience, our community. It's not easy to tell a story in the way you did. And I took note of it, how you created space, allowed us to interject and then said, great, now I want to continue because there's more I want to share. Like you Mm -hmm. have a leadership quality that very few exhibit and I want to bring it to light. Because if the listener was only caught up in the story, they wouldn't have been able to see the kind of leadership you just displayed. And probably one of the main reasons your success has become what it is, is this ability. Now, I'm sure it wasn't a conscious effort the entire time. Maybe there were moments where you did that. But for me, I can't help as as an observer of human behavior, I can't help but point that out in our conversation to allow the listener to like really let that set in 
and mm-hmm. to review this episode to see exactly how you did that. I have to ask, did you ever take the conscious time, like conscious effort to sit there and like think of a story? Because I know, you know, working with, with Dr. Peck and all that and, you know, being a presenter and creating events, did you craft a narrative at one point or is it just you've been living your life under such, you know, stress and constant, just entrepreneurship just molded you that way? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and, and thank you for that observation. I mean, it's part of what I've worked hard at just listening and being present and just being in a rhythm of a flow or of a group or of a process. So it's kind of in my DNA at this point. Um, but second, I think to answer your question, what I've learned to do is to trust myself more and more just to be present in the moment and to answer and speak what shows up or what's happening. So as an example, I was in a boardroom last week with uh, two leaders of a $4 billion, 8,000 person company. And I'm helping them design their mission, vision, values. And then I'm going to help them design their leadership process for their next layer, layer of leadership and helping them develop the qualities and skills and network they need in order to move the company forward. Like once we create the mission, vision, values. Well, I realized when I was sitting there that in some respects, I didn't belong in that room because I've never run a big company, right? But as soon as those thoughts hit my head, I thought, no, you're not here to run the company. You're here to bring the value that you've brought to so many other places. And I just asked myself the question, what value can I bring right now? And at some point in that two-hour meeting, I said to them, look, here's my role. I'm not a strategist. I cannot tell you how to run your company. But what I can do is help you design a process so that you and your top leaders will all have bought in to what we create as a mission, vision, value, if you're willing to listen to the collective voice. And then I asked some key questions. How much power do you want to give up? Do you want to make the decision and then ask everyone to go along? Or are you trusting the group and the people you've hired to craft that mission, vision, and values? Because the more voice you give them, the more buy-in they'll have. And fortunately, they said yes. Right? And I said, okay, I'm going to help you design the process so all those voices can be a part of it. And I'll bring in some experts. Right? I happen to know and work with the person who helped Simon Sinek develop his why. Right? One of the top branding experts in the world. Right. So he's going to go in with me. Right. We'll craft this together. But I think the other piece is that's helped me is to not put myself in a spot I don't belong. If I am in a spot and crazy thoughts show up, just listen to them, let them go and just ask the question, where can I deliver value? And then simply ask what needs to happen and how can I be a part of it? And so as long as I follow those rules, I'm a lot better off. As a matter of fact, there are sometimes when I go into big meetings or big sales meetings, people say, where are your notes? And I was like, notes get in the way. If, if I really listen to what's going on, the right things will happen. If I'm not listening and I'm trying to follow my script or get my points in, I'm going to force something that doesn't need to be forced. And it's probably only going to create some kind of tension. And so there are times where, like from a strategic point of view, I'll make all my notes ahead of time. I'll do my research, but then I'll leave it in the car 
And I'm just going to walk in and just listen. So probably my biggest strategy is listening. Yeah. I I got, I got something on this because this morning I just put out a LinkedIn post that kind of really meshes in with what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot of people try to be more than they actually are. right? Right. So, or they try to serve everybody instead of serving a few that are matched in with their superpower. I call it your superpower. That's what I call it. Right. Mm -hmm. Stay in your zone of genius and just do that. Don't, don't try to, you know, shove round pegs and square holes, right. With things that you're not, it isn't, maybe it isn't even that it's not your, you're not good at it. It's just not your strength. Cause you, if you go into a situation and you've got that strength that's locked in, it's keyed up, it's on point, on target, it can't fail. But the second you step outside that and go, well, let me put my input. Is it right? Or did you just send it down a damaging road? Right? Well, it's so true. And I'll I'll give two examples here. Um, One, I went, as soon as COVID started to open up, I went to several masterminds like these different gatherings and groups. And there were a couple that were so frustrating to me because I would introduce myself, say hello. And the first thing was a pitch. <laughs> oh my God, dude, <laughs> dude, are you really, you really, you don't even know. You, you, you came to spell, you can't, you can't pronounce my last name and you're pitching me. <laughs> it, it, it drove me crazy. And it was like person after person after person. And I, I just, oh, I couldn't stand them. And you know, when you're getting pitched right away. Oh man! Sure. <laughs> so with the Hope Makers Collective, yes, I'm glad you did that. <laughs> Hope Makers Collective. It was one of my rules. I said, "There's no pitching allowed, none whatsoever." And we lead. We made one of our values listening. Now, I think everyone who creates a mastermind, they should create it based on their top value, especially if that value intersects with a need in the world. And I just kind of trusted that there are some people out there who aren't going to like to be pitched and just want to be listened to and listen to others. And so that's part of why I created Hope Makers, the Hope Makers Collective. And we specifically have a rule where we structure different conversations where people can come and share what they're doing and get help and vice versa, but we're not allowed to pitch whatsoever. And so in it, and we just did our second meeting and people loved it. They're like, when's the next one? I'm like, okay, we'll have another one. Right. And so it's mostly for coaches, trainers, facilitators, but we have an award-winning musician in the group. We have one of the top peace activists in the world in the group. We have like all these different kinds of folks who are in it as well, because they just enjoy the group and we're trying to make it international. So we have people flying from Africa, from Asia. We have people from uh, South America. So it was really pretty cool. It was only about 40 or 50 people. Um, but the other interesting thing is from a listening perspective, because we just don't know where things are going to go. The reason Hope Makers Collective started is at the beginning of COVID, one of the vaccine makers came to me and said, we're looking for a company to help us bring hope to the world. Will you make a proposal to train 50,000 of our people to bring hope to the world. And I was like, that's a cool assignment. <laughs> and so for two months, I worked on this proposal called like some of the best thought leaders in the world. 
Every single one said yes. We put together this team of 75 people, this 80 plus page presentation. And it came down between us and ironically, Accenture. Right. So Accenture is a spinoff of Arthur Anderson. So it was kind of ironic that all of a sudden now here I am years later competing (laughs) against Accenture. Well, lo and behold, Accenture gets the job and we don't. And the reason that happened is the client said, look, your vision was too big. Because our vision and what we put specifically in the proposal, I told everyone who participated in this, and we had people like Raj Sasodi who wrote Social, Social Capitalism, um, David Cooper Ryder, who was the father of Appreciative Inquiry, um, a person who ran a successful presidential campaign. You know, we had like some big folks. And I told everyone, look, whatever you put into this project, be ready to give away. Because when we're done, we're then going to bring it out to their top vendors And then from there, we're going to give it to young people so everyone can bring hope to the world. Wherever the tools, the the videos, whatever we put together. And the client said, you know what? We love your vision. We're going to come back to you in two or three years. But right now, we can only think about our 50,000. We can't think about the whole world. And so we didn't get it. But here's, here's the interesting thing. I went back to the group and I said, gang, thank you for all your work. Uh, We didn't get the job. You know, another, we got to the final cut, but another company got it. And they said, you know, we've enjoyed this so much. Can we stay together and still find ways to do it? And so here we are two and a half years later. The group is still together. We've now met twice face to face. And we've had things like, as soon as the war started in Ukraine, I got a message from someone. And they and the message said, look, do you want to make a difference in the world? And I texted back, of course, that's what Hope Makers Collective is about. And they said, okay, let's go to the border and help refugees. This was just days after the war started. And I was like, oh, wow, this person isn't kidding. Like, that's the real deal. And I showed my wife that. And she said, I'll go. I was like, what? She says, I'm going. So then we both made airplane tickets to go. I ended up staying back for family and some other reasons. She ended up going. And then another person from the group joined them later. To the point where now we're building um, enough room for 40 people to have permanent housing who are refugees, right? It's just one example of something that's happened out of Hope Makers Collective. Now, all of that came out of a failure, right? Came out of a failure. And so, I mean, I didn't intend for this, but maybe the lesson is out of all of our failures, good things happen (laughs) because, you know, those people stole from me and and here's a failure and all of a sudden there's this group and then off. You just, you just don't know if you stay on the journey and keep going. So that's know, the key I mean, right there. The key is that don't ever get off the bus. Just keep, right. just keep putting one foot in front of the next, in front of the next, in front of the next, in front of the next. Right. Cause I could tell you many times in my business journey, which mm-hmm. spans back 20 some years, you know, there's been lots of times coming up into the house and my wife is like, Mike, God, how many more times are you going to get your ass kicked? It's mm-hmm. just like as many as it takes. How about that? <laughs> fact, some of some of those ass whoopings were good. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, you you look back if you look back on your life and you say you list all the times you've had your ass whooped. There are. Oh, I tell you right now, there are going to be some <laughs> on that list 
where you're going to say, I am so glad that happened. <laughs> That's right. Now that it's over, I'm glad that took place. Right. And we don't know which ones are which when it's happening. We don't. I mean, when I was a senior in college, I played football my freshman, sophomore, and junior year. I started my sophomore and junior year. My junior year, okay, 22 players on the team, 11 offense, 11 defense. 21 of the 22 players were juniors. My class was the most prolific football class in the history of this university. We lost our first game our junior year. We lost in the NCAA playoffs the last game our senior year. I also had two younger brothers who also came to the university and were playing on the team. And my younger brothers, they probably won't listen to this, but they were better than me. I mean, I'll tell, face-to-face, -face, I'll say I was always the better player, but, you know, we have that rivalry. <laughs> but, but they were there. So we would have been three brothers starting on a team in an NCAA playoff, which I think, I may have never researched it, but I would think that's probably the first time ever, especially for football. Week before the season starts. I tear up my knee playing softball, never played it down my senior year. The team was inducted into the University Hall of Fame, the whole team, because of its record. Oh, wow. My younger brothers got there. I didn't. Now, I still wish I was on the wall with them because that would have been cool. But during that injury, and at the point, this was in 1980, I was in a hip-to-toe cast. Right, They do knee operations a lot differently than they did back in the 80s. A friend of mine took me on this trip with him because I was depressed. I met some people on that trip that were so important. I went back and spent the summer with them a couple of years later. The people I met there changed my life and got me into meditation and got me into some spiritual practices that have paid, paid off handsomely for me, much more so than being on the wall at the university. I would have never have guessed that at the time. But if I had to go back and do it all over again, that knee injury was a gift. Painful one, but a gift. And so all of us, there isn't a person on the planet who's lived more than 30 years who, if they made their list of ass whoopings, <laughs> there are a few of them that they'd be like, I'm glad that happened. I wouldn't have picked it at the time, but I'm glad it happened. You know? Oh, man. I, I usually ask like uh, quite consciously and, and obviously, hey, is there anything you can leave behind for, for someone? Yet? But if they have listened to this at all, this far, this entire episode is a leave behind uh, for, for a young leader, a would-be leader, anyone who just got their ass kicked and needed a reminder of what it takes. And yeah. I'm so glad you brought up that spiritual meditation practice because I do find that there is an eternal optimism in entrepreneurs that just one, especially after interviewing thousands of people and, you know, adding to this and, and all of them CEOs or some kind of venture capital, some level that what I see without a doubt is that optimism as opposed to pessimism, which is like, they're, they're always right. And they take no satisfaction from it. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's just this optimism of, well, I stay in the game and things can change. Right. And, and, and not being shaken from their center. That is such a valuable quality. It's just encapsulating everything that they just heard in, in your story. And I'm so, even the fact 
like I was like, oh, this is about to turn into an additional episode because I was like, wait a minute, you were an athlete because we've talked about this before with uh, with uh, the correlation between entrepreneurs and whether they're, you know, some level of fitness or some some hobby of fitness, right? Some kind of athleticism, some kind of military background. Do you right. find and, and and pardon me for asking this at such a such a late end, uh, point of the game here, but do you find that your ability to develop a process maybe tied back to the time you were going all in on being part of an, a football team and knowing the plays and sticking to the plays and things of that nature? Um, I think so. And I think that, the, I mean, the sports I was, I played football, basketball, baseball, and then high school was mostly football and basketball. And then the university was football until my senior year. And then I went out for the basketball team because I couldn't play that season of football and ended up making the team. Um, I mean, it was D3, so it was a little easier, but, you know, ended up being on the team. I think the fact that I was always in groups and working as a team is part of the training that allowed me to always be interested in facilitating and working with groups, organizations, or big kind of pictures versus the one-on-one coaching. Uh, I do one-on-one because, you know, a lot of times executives will say, look, I want to be coached by you. And I'll be like, I'll tell you what, I'm not a very good coach. And like, what do you mean? I said, well, because every once in a while, if you're just so slow, I'm just going to tell you, look, this is what you got to do. And I'm not going to, I'm not just going to ask questions, ask questions. I'm going to say, here's what I think, you know, now you don't have to take it, but just know I'm not that great of a coach because coaches would always just ask questions. Um, but to answer your question, I think, I think the teamwork in the team sports did help a lot. I just, I just see it. And and you have this ability that, that that's been highlighted throughout the entire journey of designing, mm. right? Right. Designing. And it, it's mentioned in passing. It's the work that you do. And yet there is a part of who you are mm-hmm. and shaped through experiences that, that, I mean, that was how you got started in the game here in the conversation, right? Yeah. This designing. If you, and I, I usually, again, I usually don't do this, but if you could just, Point the listeners who are all business owners, you know, in the right direction of how to interpret, how to envision, how to approach mm-hmm. the concept of designing a game plan. I don't mean like running a business, but really like designing, think, taking things into consideration and going, here's how they line up. You might want to move this piece first. What does that look like? Well, if we have time, I'll, I'll share one more story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please. So. One of those first clients that came up to me at that conference was a company that trained dentists and their staffs on how to run better practices. And so I went and I trained dentists all over the country and their teams and et cetera. Well, one of these gentlemen left that company and started his own. And he said, look, will you come out and run this retreat for some dentists for me in Montana? And I was like, sure. So I get there. And he greets me and he says, oh, and you're going to work with these two other guys. They're down in this cabin. Go meet them. So I went down there and I met Jim and, and Bill. And we talked about these two old guys. And we talked about what we're going to talk about and kind of put the whole thing together. And I really like these guys. I'm like, these guys got it going on. They're pretty good. So we run the program. We won the retreat. Retreat. I come back the next year. Sure enough, we're doing the retreat again. We did it, I don't know how many years, maybe three or four years. I come back the next year and I was like, Jim, you didn't tell me you're Jim Rohn. It was Jim Rohn. It was Jim Rohn and Bill Bailey. It was like the three of us <laughs> and ran these retreats. 
was like, Jim, you got books and tapes and everything else. He's like, yeah. I said, you didn't, you never said a thing to me the whole weekend. He's like, yeah, well, you know, I brought some things for you this time, Greg. And da, 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 da. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> you know. Now, the whole thing there, right? He was like one of the top speakers in the world. And he left me a lesson was just connect with the people, listen, and just figure out what's going to work. Your whole background and all this and that and all that stuff that to try to impress people doesn't matter. Now, you asked me for the formula. When we design leadership programs, we design, we specifically have ways for people to connect, proven, scientific, but also genuine, for people to connect before they start working on their projects. Because people don't leave friends behind. Right? You'll leave a stranger behind, but you won't leave a friend behind. And so the more connected people are, the more they care about each other, the more they care about accomplishing something together, and the more likely when we teach them how to make presentations, how to run a meeting, how to do design thinking, how to use creative problem-solving methods, all those other things, the more likely they are to stick through it and to make it happen. And so simple message, start with relationships first. Love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you for being so generous. Uh, where, if, pe- if people are interested in connecting with you, where do you prefer for them to connect with you? Is it westwoodinternational.com or is it uh, homemakerscollective.com, both, or social media? Well, it probably LinkedIn. And if you go to Greg, G-R-E-G, and then my last name is spelled Z as in zebra, L-E, V as in victory, O-R. I'm the only Greg Slavor on the planet. There's nobody else. There's only about 300 Slavors in the world. I happen to be the only Greg. So if you find me on LinkedIn, you know you have me and that works. But westwoodintl.com works as well. Awesome. And and if I could, I, I'm sorry that I hogged it all love, Jason. I really am. I just, uh, if, if I could uh, ask the grand finale, and before I do that, I just want to make sure, Jason, is there anything that you, you really wanted to get out? Because I know we went way over time. There's like a whole nother episode, but (laughs) (laughs) for sure, a whole nother episode. There'll probably need to be a part two to this. (laughs) I'm I'm here. I'm in front of my books just about every day, gentlemen. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah. yeah. let's roll out the, the, the finale though. Yeah. Yeah, Greg. uh, and, And we're genuinely curious about this. If you could have invited anybody in the world, to sit here as a contributor or listener, dead or alive, from any point in time, who would you have loved to have had here and why? Oh, God, there's so many. I mean, I picked up that little Napoleon Hill habit of, you know, I do my meditation 30 to 45 minutes every morning, and then I kind of go around the circle to the people who I want to teach me. I would bring that whole circle in, right? I haven't thought of that in years. Wow. Yeah, I do that almost every day. So there's a circle of kind of spiritual advisors and family and other key people. I would ask for all of them to come and be a part of it and and say, look, what did I miss? What can I add next time? So I would have asked that circle to come in. Thank you for that reminder, because reading changed my life at the age of 14. It was the only thing that kept me uh, you know, sane 
from all the things that happen in life. And I remember reading How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Four Agreements, and Thinking Grow Rich at that age, which yeah. made me made it hard for me to relate to people my age at that time. But yeah. I never forgot that idea of the mastermind and the qualities. And oh wow, I needed that today. Yet again, Greg, thank you so much for delivering, man. It's Oh. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is only part one. We're not going to let you off the hook. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know everyone listening is going to want to hear a part two. And in fact, we'll probably ask them if they have anything uh, they specifically wanted to hear from you after uh, listening to this episode. My pleasure. And Philip, I'm going to look for you. I think, Jason, we're connected on LinkedIn. I'm going to look for you on LinkedIn. You better have a, a profile on there, Philip. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to share the link with you after this. Uh, but right, uh, I want to I want to leave the traditional exit out to Jason here. He has something he says every time when we exit. Yeah, right. yeah. So I, I always like to say this. We have 168 hours in a week. Uh, thanks for stopping by and taking a sliver of that time to spend with us. And more importantly, what you left behind is pretty amazing. And hopefully people that were listening really took something from that Mm -hmm. and it didn't just zing over top. Right. So, uh, you know, so thank you for all that. This was a very, very, there was a lot of lessons in this for a young leader, hell, even a leader that's got lots of experience. Um, but it's always up to us to take it and do something with it. Right. So, um, otherwise, just three guys in a room bullshitting. So <laughs> <laughs> that ain't a bad thing either. But I'm oh, just it's saying. not so bad either. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for being here. Really yeah, appreciate man. it. Cheers. My pleasure. Great. Thank you for the invite, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to the War Room Roundtable with your hosts, Jason Miller and Philip Lanos. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advisement on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates. And always remember, if you can dream it and believe it, then you can go achieve it. We'll see you in the next episode.